may be seated. We're in Revelation chapter 14, and we're doing 1 through 13 tonight. The title of the sermon is The Eternal Gospel. We proclaim it in word and in deed. Word and deed. The gospel, the good news. It's that Jesus took the judgment of God for all humanity. He offers this free gift of salvation to whoever believes in him. Yet it does not stop there. The gospel is also the justice will prevail. The guilty and the wicked will not go unpunished. Revelation is a detailed proclamation of that gospel. Those who believe are saved, and those who deny the free gift receive the full judgment of God. That's the full gospel. Revelation 14.1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here we have the preterist and the idealist seeing the 144,000 as representing the church. The preterist sees them as the church before AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. The idealist sees them as the church for all time. They represent the completion of all the church for all time. The futurist sees the 144,000 as Jews chosen by God, 12,000 from each tribe to represent the gospel in word and in deed in the tribulation period, the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks. We too represent the gospel church in word and deed in our circles of influence. I want you to think of the circles of influence that you have. Think about where you walk. Think about where you live. Think about who you talk to, who your friends are, who your acquaintances are, who who your neighbors are. And I want you to realize that you represent the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he came and died for our sins, that he is buried, he rose again, freeing us from our sins, that he took the punishment of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon himself for all of us, and that he's coming to judge the living and the dead, that gospel, that context, that's the message that you bear, that you bring into your circle, into your neighborhood, into your home, into your workplace. We are his ambassadors representing him. The 144,000 are with Jesus, the Lamb. He's the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. He's the Lamb that shed his own blood for our souls. And they're at Mount Zion. The physical location would be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Right now, the Dome of the Rock sits on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. What the theological significance would be that this is where heaven 
intersects with earth. It is where the Ark of the Covenant rested, which is the footstool of God's throne. The mercy seat is there. The blood is sprinkled. The covenant is inside. So intersecting with his courtroom in heaven. And so as we go through this passage, it's going to seem like they're on earth, but yet they're in heaven. And I would say that they are together interacting. That question is whether or not they're in, they are in heaven or on earth. I would say they're interacting in both realms. We too interact in both realms daily as we live for Jesus, for we bring his redeeming presence wherever we go. The 144,000 belong to God and have his protection, as signified by the names of Jesus and Yahweh written on their foreheads. None of them, none of them have been lost since their numbering in Revelation Seven. All 144,000 are standing on the mountain of Zion in Jerusalem with Jesus. There's still 144,000 Jews for Jesus. We too, church, have God's seal and name upon us to bear his name, his gospel before the people in word and in deed. Revelation 14, 2 through three says, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elbows. No one could learn that song, excuse me, except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. On Mount Zion, where heaven and earth intersect, an overwhelming yet soothing voice is heard by John. The 144,000 join their voices with a new song, which they only have the right to sing. They have earned the right to this song, for God has called them to it. It comes from their mission and their calling. Here with the Lamb, they sing it before the heavenly throne room. Church, we too are called to sing. We too gather together and we too engage in worship of God. We join with the heavenly courtroom, the angels who are singing praises, the multitude of those who have gone before us, the four living creatures who are there worshiping the Lamb and worshiping the Yahweh. We too join and raise a hallelujah with all of heaven. That is a privilege, that is an honor. And not only that, but like Paul and Silas who raised the hallelujah in the presence of their enemies, in the presence of the jail, where they were locked up in stocks. They sang praises to the Lord, and the Lord sent an earthquake and shook the very foundations of that jail, and they were freed. And church, today we stand in a world that is against God and against his Messiah, and in that world we raise a hallelujah in the presence of our enemies. We praise God the Lord. For he is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all glory and honor. 
Revelation 14, 4 says, If these, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb. And their mouth, and in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. The 144,000 proclaim the gospel in deed. They are virgins. There's a lot of scholarly debate about whether or not this is speaking of a literal virgin or a spiritual virgin. Both ideas are prevalent in Scripture. Both ideas have merit. If you are a preterist or an idealist, then you're going to favor the idea of a spiritual virgin. Because if it's speaking of all the church, not all the church as individual or virgins, but we as the bride of Christ are presented to Christ as a bride, as a virgin. And, and it is meaning that they're virgins in that they don't go after false gods. Namely, they don't prostitute. Namely, the prostitute who rides the beast, making the nations drink of her sexual immorality. And this image is so prevalent of Babylon uh, the Great in Revelation. So if you are a futurist, you're not going to favor the idea. You're going to favor the idea of them being literal virgins. The point of being virgins demonstrates their commitment and the focus to calling to the calling which God has placed on them and not entangling themselves with the affairs of life, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.32. So it's not the whole church. It's just these 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, and none of these men have had relations. They're not married. They haven't had relationships with women. They are dedicated solely to God and to his purpose. Either way, application is the same. We are to be loyal to God and about his mission of sharing the gospel in word and in deed. That's the application. Don't go after the world. Don't go after Satan and his, and his system. Love God. Worship God. Share his gospel in word and indeed, the 144,000, they follow Jesus. The idea of a disciple is to follow and copy that of the teacher. Uh, when I worked construction and I was working with a guy over me, right, I would watch and anticipate what he's doing, and then I would be able to do it later. Sometimes he would give me a job, and he would give me instructions, right? I was his disciple. I followed him around. I handed him tools, right? We are Jesus' disciples. We, we follow him wherever he goes. We, we try to take our cues from the him and listen to what he has to say. So may we too take our cues from Jesus, our teacher. He's the embodiment of the gospel, which we are called to proclaim in word and in deed. They are redeemed as first fruits. First fruits, the first of what comes in. That's the Old Testament context. You give to God first, the first of 
your labor, the first of your produce. So the preterist and idealist see this as the church. John is picking up on, they say that John is picking up on James 1.18, which says, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The futurist uh, doesn't see the 144,000 as the church, so it doesn't make that tie to those first fruits of the church as James does, but it says that the 144,000 are the first fruits of Israel returning to God and accepting Jesus as their Messiah. 144,000 are truthful. We are all charged to speak the truth in love. Honesty is always the best policy. May we speak the truth of the gospel, church, not to destroy, not to just throw it out there, but to be ambassadors of reconciliation as we are charged to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. They are blameless. Blameless. We all need to re be reminded where their blameless comes from. It comes from the work, on Christ's work on the cross and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's where their blamelessness comes from. It doesn't come from their own merit. Church, we too are blameless in the same way because of what Christ has done for us, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And may we never forget. May we never forget what Christ has done. May we not think that we start with the cross and we end with our works. It is from the cross to the cross. There's, there's no in-between. We respond to God's love for us. That is what our relationship with God is all about, responding to him, his love given, responding in worship, responding in obedience, responding in worship and awe. Revelation 14.6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in directly overhead or in mid-heaven with the eternal gospel to proclaim to all those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language. Mid-heaven, that's the idea is everybody is getting it. And if you didn't get it from mid-heaven, then you got it from those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language. The gospel is going to be proclaimed uh, to all. It's not a fleeting idea or a work. It is eternal, church. The gospel is eternal. It's an eternal gospel, eternal good news. God's work of redemption and judgment will be forever and ever and ever. That's good news. That's something to be excited about. Here, everyone Everyone on earth, every tribe, every nation, every language, hears the gospel proclaimed. No one is left out. It reminds me of Matthew 24, 14, who says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Often this is given to 
uh, us as a missions uh, thrust. Let's go preach the gospel so Jesus will come back. But Jesus really has it under control. Not that we shouldn't go preach the gospel, because we should. It doesn't negate our call to proclaim in word and deed. For we, excuse me, for we have a great privilege, a great honor to join God in his work of reconciliation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors pleading through Christ for you, for our sisters or our brothers and our friends and our mothers and our fathers and anybody we know to be reconciled to God through the work of the cross. Revelation 14, 7 says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The message of the gospel here is not what you would expect. When we think of the gospel, we usually think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Yet, we forget about John 3.17 and 18. Just right after John 3.16 and also John uh, 3.36, which says the wrath of God abides on those who do not believe. But here it says in John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to contemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 18. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We tend to leave off the consequences of not believing. The consequence of not giving God the reverence and awe that he deserves is to be condemned by the justice of God. That's the reality. And we don't tend to talk about that that very much, and I understand because that's not a popular message. And God does love you, and God does care about you, and God loved you so much that he sent his only son. But if there wasn't the justice of God, the cross means nothing without God's justice, which is expressed in the wrath. Because if God doesn't have wrath, and God doesn't have justice, and God doesn't bring all evil and brokenness into subjection and, and punish it, then what's the point of the cross? That's what the cross takes on. All guilt, all punishment, all brokenness, and makes a way for us to be redeemed. That's the good news. That brokenness will be dealt with. That redemption is here. And it will be dealt with either in the cross or in the day of the Lord. Revelation 14.8 says, And another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. 
God's wrath in, coming, in the coming chapters is poured out on Babylon, for she is fallen in judgment. The Preterist sees Babylon as the cipher for Rome, as illustrated in 1 Peter 5.14. She who is at Babylon, speaking of Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. The idealist sees Babylon as a symbol of the corrupt world system that began at Babel and continues in all the nations that have challenged God since. This, this system, known as Babylon, will fall because of God's judgment. The futurist sees Babylon as representing a rebirth of Rome in some form in the last days. Uh, these interpretations is based on Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. There's good news. <laughs> there is great news. This world and its brokenness, it's not going to be forever. God is going to fix it all. He's a God of redemption. He's a God that works through the brokenness. He's the God that brings all things to fruition. There is a new heaven, a new earth, a renewed heaven, a renewed earth coming that we as believers will live on for all eternity without brokenness, without sickness, without sorrow, without despair. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and, the, and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. The first angel gives a call to worship God, to fear him, to give him reverence and awe, the creator of all. And if you don't worship him and follow him, then ultimately you worship the beast. There is no sitting on the fence. There is no saying, oh, I, I didn't really mean it. You either worship God or you worship the beast. You worship his system. And you might say, no, I'm not about either. I'm for myself. Well, then if you're for yourself, then you're for the world system. Because God gives his glory and his worship to none other. The mark of the beast is a counterfeit. I want you to know that. It's a counterfeit to God's mark, which he places on his own. He, his own know him and give him glory. They worship him. They, they give him reverence and awe. The consequences of unbelief are dire. They're dire. They, they break my heart. The full wrath of God for all eternity in the lake of fire. There ain't no rest for the wicked. That song who made was made to make fun of that, actually is true. There ain't no rest for the wicked in life or death. 
So I implore you, I encourage you, believe. (laughs) Believe in Jesus. Believe in what he has done. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is a call for endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Church, God has a plan for his people. It's bigger than this life. It's bigger than our comfort. It's bigger than the illness that we may be experiencing or or the relational strain that we may be under. He came and died so that we might have life. Life eternal in communion with God, the creator of the universe. To know him. That communion starts when we believe the gospel. When we believe it. And we don't have to wait till we die. That's the good news. For a taste of the ultimate rest that will be ours in Jesus. We find that rest as we find as we live the gospel in the mundane of life. We find that rest as we allow Jesus to enter in to our daily routine. And we live in relationship with him. It becomes more than just our Sunday morning or our Wednesday night. It becomes a daily routine where we spend time with him and, and go through our day with him, allowing his redemption, allowing his love and his peace to fill us. We can engage in our relationships with, the fa- with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at any time. At any time, we can commune with the creator of the universe. And a good way to do this is communion. And this Sunday is the first of the month. It's our communion month. So let's look at Luke chapter 22. says and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer Jesus earnestly wanted to share a meal with his disciples before he went to the cross to share not any ordinary meal but a meal called the Passover a meal that showed that The lamb's shed blood allowed the angel of death to pass over 
the Israelites and not kill them. And for us, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He allows, he takes on the wrath, the punishment of God so that the wrath of God will pass over us. And he says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's not going to eat Passover again until we join with him in heaven. And here we are doing this, taking of these elements as elements of a meal in memory of what Christ has done. He took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's looking forward to drinking this cup with us. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We have this bread, semblance of the meal, that he wants to share with us, that he's waiting to share with us, semblance of his body given for us. Let's take and eat. We have this cup representing his shed blood for us blood that brought in the new covenant, the covenant that says that his death is enough for us. For anyone who believes, it is enough. And he's waiting to share it with us when he comes in his kingdom. And we take and we drink. And we say, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly, Lord. Thank you for your death. Thank you that you rose again. Thank you that you are coming again to make all things right. Church, may we find rest in the eternal gospel as we live it out in word and in deed.